think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 15 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 16th episode. I'm Laurent Carpineau. I'm Ethan Rainville. And uh, today we have a pretty pretty good little lineup of stuff. There's been a lot of news considering that it's been a two parliamentary break weeks in a row. Yeah, it's been uh, pretty busy. The the Americans have helped out keeping yes. our uh, keeping our news cycle always, flowing along. Always keep things interesting. Um, so first, a quick update on the conservative leadership. But Tian, uh, you, you have some numbers for us. Yeah, like literally ten minutes ago, uh, CBC reported uh, the final conservative party membership numbers. Uh, so the total number who will be eligible to vote um, in about two months, month and a half. Actually, less no, than a month. Eh? A month. Yeah. About a month. May twenty sixth, I think. Yeah, something along those lines. Uh, May 27th. Right. And so the final number released is 259,010 members, um, which is actually a quarter, over a quarter million people, uh, which is a pretty substantial chunk. Yeah. Um, Population of Saskatoon, give or take. Just for reference. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So this is a growth of 150,000 members from sort of the baseline uh, probably about a year ago. And uh, I think it's interesting to compare it to the Liberal uh, Party when they did their last leadership, the leadership that elected Justin Trudeau. They had 300,000 Canadians, so 40,000 more. However, there's a little asterisk on that one because they had a free membership category. Supporters. Supporters that were able to vote. Yeah. As opposed to the Conservative membership has a $15 a piece price tag to it. Yeah. Um, So seeing that the Liberals were able to get you know, 40,000 more having free memberships is actually... I think That's that speaks, pretty good news for the Conservatives. I think that speaks highly to the Conservative leadership race yeah. and to uh, I, how, uh, it also how it's speaks, enticed people. Yeah, I think uh, it's people have been brought in by the dynamic leadership that uh, Kevin O'Leary is going to offer your party when he wins. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, actually, another uh, quick uh, add-on to that is... Um, well, first of all, it's going to inevitably be compared to the, the NDP leadership race numbers whenever... Those kind of come out. So, um, do you know how many the NDP had registered I, in their last election? I don't even want to know, but you're going to tell me. Give it a shot. What do you think? Oh, geez. So, I, I'd probably guess under 100,000. Over 100,000. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Like 120 or something? 130. Okay. 128,000. Okay. That, that seems like, yeah, about. I mean, like, that's nature of the beast, right? Um, At least we went to, you know, multiple significant digits. We have <laughs> 259,010 members. You guys were fudging your numbers a little bit with uh, 128. Uh, uh, also, to remind everyone, the most important conservative uh, leadership race poll is uh, the one on political.com. Uh, definitely go there. Vote for Deepak Obrai. It was decided in a Twitter poll of our followers. And that's who we've chosen to endorse to win the poll. I've heard from a significant amount of people who've said they voted, but we haven't really made a dent, which leads me to believe that political has a stronger maybe just every following than I ever would have suspected. Perhaps, uh, or just it's like staffers, and they're all just in there like every day. Yeah, just, every every campaign has like their own crew of people rigging it, getting a new BlackBerry, like voting and throwing it out, just like going through IP addresses. So once again, for everyone who who didn't listen to our last episode, uh, they're running this leadership tracker. Uh, that's basically like you, anyone can go in and just click on the, the, the name or the face of the person. Very scientific. It's very scientific. It's basically just like a rolling thing where it gets updated every day and votes older than a week are thrown out. It, there's no scientific basis to it whatsoever. And uh, the Andrew Shear campaign used it as like the basis of a mail out showing they were in first, which is Un- really funny because they're of, no longer yeah, in first. I know, yeah, yeah. O'Leary passed him like a day after. 
Um, but yeah, so everyone should go do that. It is essential that we put Deepak at least on the top row. Uh, we brought him out of the bottom four, so we can be proud of that. But we should we have further to go. Uh, no, he, he's reverted back to the bottom four. Of the bottom oh five. no, he's bottom five. No, that's fine. That's fine. We can behind Stephen Blaney. Oh, okay. Anyway, uh, do that when you get a chance. I'll I'll put that in the show notes. Very good. Um, so our our, our big thing today is a as we, we love talking about the conflict of interest commissioner and the conflict of interest act uh, because it's an under covered Ottawa phenomenon because okay as as Etienne and I were discussing earlier before we started taping um it's kind of breaking new ground because the conflict of interest commission has only been around for about a decade and it hasn't really made a lot of rulings on a lot of significant cases so the Trudeau case that's coming up and you can hear all our opinions and coverage on that in the early episodes is going to be a big one uh, but also there was one on uh, former Justice Minister and Treasury Board President uh, Vic Taves, who's uh, from Manitoba, is now a judge there, uh, on some stuff he did after he left government. Uh, and that's pretty detailed, so I'll let Etan uh, walk us off on that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very detailed. It's been making the headlines the past few days. CBC and a couple others have been reporting on it. CBC's headline is, Vic Ta- or their most recent one, is Vic Taves to face... Canadian Judicial Council review over conflict of interest allegations. Yeah, as I mentioned, he is a judge, so uh, he's held to a quite high standard on this kind of thing, and it could affect his judgeship. Yeah, so it's sort of very, very serious allegations. Uh, very interesting case, especially when you start reading into the fine print of yeah. it. This is one of the cases where the media reporting is often very superficial of. Yeah. Uh, it sort of becomes a he said, she said. As opposed to going and actually reading the report, uh, Mary Dawson, who's the Conflict of Interest Commissioner, reading her report and seeing sort of how her rationale works. Yeah. And it was in reading that rationale that I sort of question some of her argumentation Yeah. in regards to one uh, particular charge. Yeah. So the charge under uh, subsection 35.1, uh, which is the one related to direct and significant official dealings. Yeah. And we, we should back up a little bit and outline what it is that he's been accused of. Yes. Um, so the story is sort of com- complicated. Yeah. The, as, as is typically the case. With yeah. <laughs> it, it's sort of, it's happened over a number of years. There's different parts of the act involved. But so, sort of the cliff notes is that during Vic Tave's last year in office, uh, he was the senior regional minister for Manitoba. And he met with a group, a uh, First Nations group called Norway House Cree Nation. Um, in regard to what's called the, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, the Kinawa Trust Flood Agreement and a proposed amendment to Schedule 2 of the First Nations Goods and Services Tax Act. It sounds incredibly So riveting, basically I'm the sure. kind of stakeholder meeting that any minister has on any given day. Yes. It happens okay. all the time. Ministers do not really give them a second thought in most cases. It sounds like a, you know, maybe a 20-minute meeting, maybe yeah. a 30-minute meeting from, from experience. Yeah. And likely the thing you forget immediately after you went into the room. So people listening might think, ah, but for a normal meeting, wouldn't they normally just meet with staff? Yes, that would be typical, but like meeting with a minister isn't like a real game changer. It's mostly just an ego soother, I think, usually for stakeholder groups. Yeah. It's not significantly more meaningful than meeting with like a director of policy or something. Especially if he's a, uh, well, he was the regional minister. Yeah. So dealing with regional files is 
part of the personal part, touch part yeah. of your job doing the personal touch yeah especially if they're you know a significant stakeholder in the region yeah and a big the big first nation is yeah like it might not where. be their issue that's significant it could be the group themselves exactly um so that's maybe why they took the meeting this of course all speculation so the commissioner found uh sort of examined the history of meetings here and vic taves following being a minister he went on to do a little bit of work for this first nation yeah and so the issue is that he started working for the uh, the band one year or within a year of having met with them the last time. Yeah. And so there's what's called the cooling off period uh, in which your conflict of interest rules are a little tighter. Yeah. And we're, we're going to address one rule in particular, which is the rule that the commissioner uh, deemed him to have broken. Here. Yeah. And so let me let me read out sort of how this rule is phrased. So, subsection 35.1 of the Act declares that a former reporting public office holder, which includes ministers, I myself am a reporting public office holder, which is why this case is significant here, um, is prohibited from entering into a contract or service or accepting an offer of employment with an entity with which he or she has had, quote, direct and significant official dealings during the period of one year before his or her last day in office. So the direct and significant dealings is really the part that I yeah. want to drill down on. Yeah. Because what defines direct and significant dealings? Reading that myself, I would presume that direct uh, and significant... Direct is, you know, face-to-face. There's some examples given that it can be over the phone, but it's sort of... A, the person is dealing with it directly. I, yeah. I think that's less ambiguous than significant. Right. So the question is, what composes significant dealings? I think the general interpretation of significant dealings before this point was that these deals were significant to the reporting public office holder at the time. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be what would make sense. That if these deals were significant to Vic Taves, then he would be in a breach of conflict of interest. However, if these details or if this meeting was completely trivial to him, then it wouldn't be. Yeah, which I think it is fair to say the context would suggest. I think there's no reason to think that this would be anything other than a routine stakeholder meeting. And in Mary Dawson's report, she essentially acknowledges or she presumes that that is his position. um, And she says, that's fine because we're going to interpret it more harshly. We're going to interpret it that it was significant to the stakeholder, being the First Nations group here, mm-hmm. and therefore you're still in breach of the conflict of interest. Yeah, and that strikes me as, because once again, we should note, there, there's no precedent on this, so this is setting it. Yeah, it's, there's uh, and, no jurisprudence, there's no history yeah. here. It's literally up to her arbitrary decision and of, course, of what constitutes significance. Is the significance that they requested for a meeting about it? Because if that's the case and that's the standard that's being applied, like that is very, very stringent to pass the point of reasonableness, I would think. That's sort of my take on it. What what I don't like about this interpretation, number one, I think the common sense interpretation goes the other way. I agree. That it's significant to the office holder. Um, the other question it raises is then the burden of proof of determining what is significant. Yeah, exactly. And like I said, it's not something like, I can determine myself. Yeah, as a minister or a public office holder, right? Yeah, so. I, I am a former reporting public office holder. I'm now outside of my one year window. But if I were in that year window, 
if I were applying to jobs and accepting positions and doing any of these things, there is no way for me to know if I've had interactions with individuals, whether or not the satisfaction of uh, the significance clause would be met or not on my own. Yeah. That I would have to, I don't like, who do you reach out to? Is it the president of the organization? Is it the person well, you met with? How important was this for you? Yeah. Like, or it's, it's it a minefield. so ridiculous it's just a minefield. that they would, that this responsibility would be offloaded from the reporting public office holder to the stakeholder group. But with the reporting office holder still accountable. So if you meet, let's say, a stakeholder group for books, I'm, I'm just picking something literally off the shelf here. Though the, the hey. uh, <laughs> literally, um, so you meet you meet the book stakeholder group, and you're a minister, and say you're the minister for fisheries and oceans, and you have absolutely nothing to do with it. You have nothing to do with books. You have no sway over the. And they, they ask you because their headquarters is in your writing for some reason. Any, right? like just they think they have an in, and they're like, you know, we have a really big ask about books this year, and you're you're thinking about lobsters and quotas, and you don't give a shit about books. You take the meeting. They go and say, hey, it'd be really meaningful to us if you connect us with the minister for books. Uh, it, it would mean the world to us. And you're kind of like, okay, whatever. All right, sure, I'll connect. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll talk to him. Yeah. Absolutely. I'll talk and to then, my colleague. And then if you ever want to go work in, in the book industry, you're, you're now like... In a minefield of conflict of interest. Yeah, like you and just you don't know. No. Yeah, and it, where does this go? Because if it's an industry group, like do the companies that make up the industry group then have... Is it significant to them? Like, it, I think this is... I, I generally think that like fairly stringent and restrictive conflict of interest is reasonable and typically good. I think this goes too far. Like I think this is unreasonable to the point because, as we've mentioned, the office holder simply can't know. Like it, it is, they cannot. It is incredibly difficult for them to comply. It is unreasonable, I think, to expect them to be able to read the minds of everyone they meet with. So that one, I think, we both agree is like mind-blowingly bad yes it opens up a huge range of potential conflicts of interest that have even previously occurred that people were you know yeah. completely unaware of because i don't think anyone has been interpreting the act yeah. this way this is because nutty. there's no precedence yeah and for so the now record, there is <laughs> yeah now, now so, there uh, is have fun everyone <laughs> and it's the worst precedent imaginable yeah so we asked the uh conflict of interest commissioner i i did sort of the journalist thing as we've now been knighted yeah we're now journalists yeah uh, so I sent them a request to explain if there was any precedent or if uh, they had any justification for why they interpreted the act this way. Yeah. When it seems like the obvious interpretation is the other way and perhaps even the intention. Um, no, no response effectively. Well, they, 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 they did respond. They responded, but it was like basically classic lines yeah. referring me to the website. It was with, restating the decision basically. So yeah. it's not helpful. You, you um, might be interested in this report. Like. Yeah, we know. <laughs> So that was one of the two questions that she ruled on. Also, a little bit more background on the report. Uh, the reason this came up at all is because in the last parliament, uh, NDP MP for Winnipeg Center, uh, Pat Martin, uh, who was defeated in the last election, asked uh, the Conflict of Interest Commission to look into something. The Conflict of Interest Commission looked at it and said, there's nothing here, but found, like, while they were doing the due diligence on that, found two things that were relevant, and so she launched an investigation on her own initiative. So the, that was the first thing that we've covered, the Norway House uh, First Nation uh, thing with um, uh, the, the flood trust fund. The second thing is, I think, a more reasonable decision. It's, it's based on uh, a 
trial or lawsuit that happened, which in which, as a minister, he was a party to. Um, so basically what happened, well, I'll keep this very brief because it's kind of a complex issue. Uh, the government tried to sell some land. First Nations wanted to buy it. The government sold it. They took him to court. Uh, the First Nations managed to get the, the sale like undone because they had interest in buying it, whatever. In that lawsuit, uh, Vic Taves, as a minister, was a party to it. And then after he left government, this was a 2007 or so, after he left government in 2012 through 2013, he consulted with the lawyer for the First Nation band that was trying to buy it and that he had been on the other side of the trial. Sorry, this is kind of complex. Um, and like gave them strategic advice, basically. Uh, this is what it is called switching sides, colloquially, as the report puts it. And it is uh, expressly forbidden. I'll, I'll read subsection 34.1. No former public office holder shall act for or on behalf of any person or organization in connection with any specific proceeding, transaction, negotiation, or case to which the Crown is a party and with respect to which the former public office holder acted for or provided advice to the Crown. So what he did, and this is his defense, is that the work he did for this First Nations band was basically lobbying slash government relations work to talk to the city of Winnipeg and the province of Manitoba assuming that the settlement would go through and that the First Nations band would get their, their claim sorted. I think that's very reasonable to read that that's still in connection with that proceeding, and he shouldn't have done it, especially because uh, unlike the cooling-off period, for this specific subsection, there is no cooling-off period. It is just until the thing is settled. And I'm inclined to think, and this is what the commissioner decided, that he was wrong to do that and that that was a breach of conflict of interest. I think that that is a... It's a stringent reading, much like the last one, though I think this one is stringent but fair. I think it is not unreasonable to expect that former ministers not involve themselves in doing, you know, consulting on for issues in which they were directly involved as ministers, even if it had been like 10 years before. Yeah, I think um, just as, as my final comment on that one, I, I think there's sort of a logistical complication there where it can practically be very, very difficult for an individual whose hands and whose signature goes on so many files yeah. in government to then go and do business. Yeah. Um, and he, like, I think you have a point on that. It, it, it does get to be tricky, but, like, especially since the suit is still ongoing. I mean, if he had waited until the suit was settled and then did it, it would have been fine. It would have been totally fine. But, like, the suit is still ongoing with the federal government, I think it's fair to expect that ministers not do that. I think the, the lawyers that hired him were wrong to do that. They should have known better, and the minister should have known better as well. So I want to bring it back to sort of just my broader theme in reading through this and sort of what this reminded me of from my days as a staffer is one of the words that's in the Conflict of Interest Act is friend. Right? <laughs> yeah, actually, this is a topic we meant to bring up the first time we talked about the Conflict of Interest Act because it's so good. Absolutely. And sort of like with the definition of significant, having no idea what it means. Yeah. What I've sort of heard is that anytime you ask the Conflict of Interest Office about friend, they sort of give you a different definition because when you're trying, when you're trying to determine whether or not a gift is appropriate to accept... Often it hinges on who is a friend. Is an acquaintance a friend? Is this person a friend? Is that person a friend? Yeah. So one of the working definitions, I have no idea if they are still using this one, but one of the ones I heard um, sort of second hand uh, from the commissioner was someone you would invite over for Christmas dinner. 
or someone you would share a turkey dinner with. This yeah. was the working definition of friend. See, and that really begs the question, like, if you have someone over for a ham, is that a conflict of interest? Ham it has to be turkey. Turkey is another <laughs> level above Turkey, turkey ham is forbidden. Dinner. Ham is fine. Like, so the the difference here, and of course, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm gonna I'm gonna wade my pinky toe into law here. Yeah, we've been doing that for like ten minutes. <laughs> and it's fine. Yeah, any lawyers who are like just heads are exploding right now, give us a shout and tell us why we're wrong. Like, we're not lawyers. Is that with law? Uh, first of all, I find that there are more like tests and there are more definitions given. Yeah. And there's also bodies of jurisprudence yeah. that lawyers can rely on. What we have instead is a conflict of interest commissioner, uh, admittedly with a legal background, yeah. well, and making like, sort of quasi-judicial yes. things with limited powers of investigation on, based on an act which has some pretty undefined definitions. Yeah, and it's pretty new also, so she's really, like, blazing the trail on a lot of this. Yeah, there's, like, a couple dozen reports of on various sections of the act. Yeah, but and none of them are on former ministers, so this is the first time, actually, someone this senior has gotten dinged. So, yeah, this decision could have, like, set the precedent for the next, you know, 20 years or whatever. What I would just like to see is I would like to see the commissioner put in writing on the website... Some sort of definitions, some sort of guidance list that helps define these words. Something that would have said, here is what significant is going to be defined as. Here is what friends are defined as. So that there is, you know, something you can work with in making your case instead of working by vague notions and then finding you ended up on the wrong side. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that would be nice, but I think it is hard to do just because context is so important on so many of these cases that I think it's hard to give just like a, a hard and fast definition that you can always go back to. I think some clearer guidelines would be certainly welcome. I think if you get too prescriptive about exactly what stuff is, I think you're creating a, a market for gaming it. You're right, and I, I can see with friends that you'd want to have a case-by-case basis. Yeah. Like friend is a very... Context-sensitive kind of thing. Absolutely, and you'd like look at the previous relationship history, and there's no, there's no reasonable way to define it that wouldn't lend itself to gaming in, yeah, some, those, in people, some manner. People will endeavor to become edge cases. However, with something like what defines significant and whose burden of responsibility the definition yeah, the, of significant is incumbent that, upon, I agree. I think that is pretty, yeah. like, pretty easy to do. I think we, we both agree. Yeah, the, the 35 one um, decision on significance and direct dealings was over harsh and too restrictive. I think we probably both also agree that the 34 one on uh, not switching sides in a legal case. <laughs> is probably fair if harsh i think it it is like a pretty stringent reading of the section but i think it is basically fair and i think like ministers should be expected to not switch sides on cases or provide advice to you know parties that they were involved in a lawsuit with uh while that lawsuit is still ongoing uh okay so that's that's the the weedsy goodness for the week or at least part of it because we have some more weeds coming up um, but a, a quick interlude of, of more lightheartedness is uh, the BC election. Yeah. So, unexpectedly, uh, the pullout today from Main Street, um, whose methodology remains unknown. Yeah, that's really weird. We'll come back to that. 
Um, has the NDP up 10 points? So 44 for the NDP, 34 for the Liberals, 17 for the Greens, I believe? Yeah, something along those lines. Yeah. So the NDP are 10 points ahead of the Liberals. Uh, John Horgan's yep. uh, NDP, Christy Clark's in second place, and the Liberal, or sorry, the Green Party. <laughs> no, you aren't, you aren't wrong, though. <laughs> the Green Party is at 17%, which is the best it's ever done. Yeah, good for them. Uh, fun fact. I roll. The uh, campaign manager is a graduate of our program. That is true, yeah. So go to MPM landing on your feet there. Yes, he is a, uh, a prodigy of the of the program of the school. So to, to circle back, I mean, while it is great to, to laud our, our program for its many accomplishments, um, yeah, so, like, what do you... I am honestly fucking flabbergasted. I I am a perpetual political pessimist when it comes to... NDP my, my elect- electoral hopes? My party's ability to win elections. Uh, I still, at the back of my mind, don't think this is happening. Like, with the Alberta thing, if you guys remember the Alberta election last year, I was living in Scotland at the time, and I was so like, this isn't happening. Like, no way. I stayed up till something like five or six in the morning waiting for the Alberta results to come in and then just being like, what? It actually happened. So I- I'm skeptic. I mean, I just... Actually, f- I can't fun, believe it. Funny story. I went to bed early. <laughs> I've done this a couple of times. I'm always like, oh, the, the result's known. I'm just going to go to bed. Same with Trump election. Yeah, really. I actually have to confess I did not stay up because... I just, you know, it's 70%, 90%, whatever it was. He was like, like, he's in the bag. I'm going to bed. Woke up at 3 a.m., check my phone. Oof. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> What's happened? But yeah, to, to come back to BC, do you, you have any analysis you want to offer? I mean, like, neither of us are super, super up to speed on, on BC. Um, I think we both read the news, but beyond that, you know, the local dynamics, I think we're a little not super known to. I, I grew up, like, not. I grew up in Seattle, so, like, BC politics, like, something I followed. But not super super closely. Yeah, this this is always the tension where if we if we dive down into this topic, anyone from BC is going to well, hate also, us because like, we're not going to do it justice. We should and probably give a shout out to everyone else from across Canada is going to yeah. be like, what are they talking about? We should about? probably we give a shout care. out to Politicos who like cover this stuff. Like that's their that's their beat. So the fellow fellow Canadian politics podcast Politicos, uh, check them out if you want some some better BC analysis. If you want to learn about bridges and MSP premiums and what those are? Then woo. Then that's uh. Yeah, they, they're, they're doing a much deeper dive. I think mostly we want the focus on the high-level like political side. I, like I said, I personally am surprised but pessimistic because I'm perpetually pessimistic. Um, I think like also it's some important like history on the BC NDP. So the BC NDP uh, governed through much of the 90s, uh, and they had one good premier in that time. Uh, Bruce Harcourt. Yeah, he was really good. Uh, but Bruce Harcourt... Uh, fell on his sword when some ministers turned out to be doing some shady crap, which is unfortunate. He resigned, and the same people who were doing the shady crap then took over the party for the next, like, 20 years, um, which is good, and then they got awesome. And then, yeah, the, the BC Liberals took over in 2000, have been in government since, like, quite a long time now, 17 years. Um, but it's this is the first time now with John Horgan as leader that someone from the 90s clique was not in charge of the BC NDP. So, in that sense, I think he represents a breath of fresh air. I think he's, you know, he's a good guy. I don't think he's a perfect party leader. No one is. Uh, but it represents a good step forward for the BC NDP. He has such a union boss face. He does look very Celtic. The man looks like the definition of a union boss. I mean, if he was fatter, he's not quite there. <laughs> 
But yeah, he has a certain parodically like, yeah. There was a just as a complete aside here. There's a union in uh, in Ontario called like the Edmund or the Ontario Elementary Teachers Union. And you think like elementary teachers, for better or worse, you have some gendered perceptions of who elementary teachers are. Then you look at the union webpage, and the president of the union or the leader of the union is. Yeah. Union boss. Union <laughs> boss. Cut, cut from that cloth. Uh, you have anything to add on, like, PC liberals or anything? I mean, I think we're two weeks out, so it's just interesting to Holy see how it crap. develops. Yeah. Um, I mean, go NDP. Oh, yeah, actually, one other interesting thing, because I brought up the Alberta thing, is that Rachel Notley is not letting anyone in the Alberta government go campaign. So, if you don't know a lot about the NDP, is the NDP, sent, like, whenever there's an election, sends people from all over the country to go work on that election. So... Uh, when I was working on the Saskatchewan election, we people from Ontario, Manitoba, BC, whatever, like people from all over the country coming to help out. Same thing in New Brunswick. The socialist brotherhood is strong. It is. Solidarity, man. But um, Rachel Notley is not letting people in her government go to work on the BC election. This, honestly, I think is like very shitty of her because it's about pipelines and rather than about like the stuff that matters more. Uh, but basically, she doesn't want to take the hit. Doesn't want to take the hit from Wild Rose and the PCs, who are going to be like, "Oh, look, Rachel Notley supporting an anti-pipeline party in BC," which, like, I, fair enough. Like, I get that that's a bad short-term incentive. On the other hand, like, not a like very solidarity-building move for. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Rachel Notley is so indebted to the rest of the NDP party. Yeah, that is. A... Who came to her backyard and dropped the Leap Manifesto yeah. and started. Yeah, so, I mean, like... Started ruining her political dreams in that province, so. I, I sympathize with, with her uh, her position there, but on the other hand, like, I think it, that's the kind of thing that will come back to bite her. Like, does John Horgan then in 2019 not let anybody from BC go to Alberta? Like, that... I, I would hope that if he becomes premier and that scenario develops, he would be more high-minded, but, like, it's an unfortunate precedent, I think, for uh, a tradition that is quite positive for the party. I just think it goes to uh, a little bit to the fact that the parties the NDP need to delink themselves from the federal and provincial bonds that tie them together I have mixed feelings about this because like yeah I, I think you're, you're right in that it does create like so so the quick context on this <laughs> is that the NDP is the only party that still maintains federal provincial linkages except for the liberals in Atlanta Canada but uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no everyone one, always forgets about that no, no one remembers that yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna ignore the existence of that and and maintain my original statement as truth um, like the PC party in Ontario in Alberta is not connected to the no like the federal conservatives have no linkages the liberals have a few in the Maritimes and the land Canada broadly and the NDP, yeah, is, is basically one organization provincially and federally. When you buy a provincial membership, you get the federal membership. In fact, that's how you get federal membership. Um, they don't have federal membership cards. It's all provincial. So, yeah, like this is a thing that has been a liability in the past because basically anybody can point to anything that any NDP government or party says or does and say, oh, look, these people all believe this. If it they, is a liability. If they don't have federal membership cards, how do Quebecois become they members? They do. They do. They do Quebec have, okay, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Quebec section does. It, yeah, but the broader point is that, yes, it presents something of a strategic liability if a tactical advantage when people all come together for this. On the other hand, you could do this anyway. The liberals do this all the time. I'm sure conservatives do. You don't actually need to have this for the benefits, and it just seems to be basically like pure cost. So, I mean, I, I like the sort of appeal of it. Like, I think it's, it's a nice idea. 
I think the execution leaves a lot to be desired and does leave provincial parties or the federal party with a lot of baggage that it has to account for from other parties that has little or no control over. I mean, part of the thesis of building the Orange Wave uh, book on the NDP uh, upset victory. In 2011. Uh, well, in, victory. Well, <laughs> in, in relative terms. Best defeat. Correct. <laughs> Um, is about the professionalization of the NDP and yeah. how breaking some of these long-held linkages was, in fact, very much beneficial yep. to professionalizing the party yeah. and to giving them, you know, reasonable electoral prospects and to having them, uh, sorry, empowering the federal party to sort of remove some of the kookier elements. Yeah, yeah, which turned out to. I have kind of mixed feelings about that as well, but it's... Uh, you are pro-team kooky. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's. I think kookiness is, in you know moderation, is, is good. It's challenging. I think uh, the NDP wouldn't be the party it is, in a good way, without the... It, look, like, centrists in the party are fine. Leftists in the party are fine. I think it's good that we're all there and we can sort of hash this out. And, like, the leftists keep the centrists honest in a way that, you know, liberals don't get challenged. Um, by by like a more left wing of the party, I think it's a healthy relationship at you know most of the time, and I think it's best to keep it that way. But anyway, uh, we we got far out from the BC election there. But... All I'm hearing is that you want more candidates who pee in coffee cups. Ah, oh, jeez. Well, that was your guys's. Yes, it don't, was. Don't look at us. Uh, yeah. On the other hand, speaking of though, like one man's kookiness is another man's principle. I think like you know Mulcair is like constant harrowing of the party for anyone who said anything vaguely critical of israel ever was perhaps not the most productive use of his time or really the most productive use of like you know members goodwill but there you go um softwood lumber softwood lumber okay so today a big announcement we're not going to get too too deep into the details of today's announcement basically i'm not a trade economist neither of us are donald trump had an announcement where he's saying there's gonna be 20 percent tariff on Canadian up to, up to 20 up to 20, yes because big asterisk on the 20 percent figure there i suppose uh up to 20 percent tariff on softwood lumber coming into uh the u.s so you've probably heard the phrase softwood lumber trade dispute before at some point it's, in your life. It's been around for... Since the 80s. I think it's 35 years yeah, so and going. It's, it's a long-running kind of thing. So instead of going too deep into today's thing, which, I mean, the, the ramifications of that will be felt out in the coming weeks, so we don't really know what's going to happen, I will make one or two quick political points about today's thing, but I want to keep it mostly on the explainer side and saying, what the hell is the software lumber trade dispute and why should we care about it? Good question. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> so the the quick, quick, quick version of this is that softwood lumber being the lumber that you, like two by four lumber, the yep. lumber that you use in home construction and pro projects like that, um, is created differently or harvested differently in Canada than the United States. Yeah. In Canada, the bulk of softwood lumber comes off of crown lands. As opposed to the United States, it comes from private land. Yeah, they, the company has to buy it. Has to either yeah. lease the land from yeah. the landowner or buy the land yeah. and then yeah. har harvest the lumber so, off of it. I mentioned earlier that I grew up in like the Seattle area. So a common sight for us when we were driving around is like basically big tree plantations. Like you, you'd see like the Weyerhaeuser sign and then, you know, like a, rows and rows of trees. So they have to buy that land, plant it, and then, you know, harvest it however many decades after they plant big pine trees. Um, not the case in Canada. Correct. Here, you basically, you rent it off crown land. So there, there are, like, tree plantations in some places, but, like, there is a, it's a mix. Like, yep. a lot of it comes from harvesting crown lands. It's not to say that there's no private lots 
In Canada, that's not true. There are, but a lot of it is crown land. So basically what the Americans argue is that this is an, basically an indirect subsidy to Canadian lumber producers because they don't have to pay for the cost of like, you know, growing and buying the land and et cetera. Like it's a whole bunch of fixed costs from like having that sort of, you know, facility, if you will, yeah. that American producers have to have face and Canadians don't. So that's the basis of the softwood lumber dispute. The Canadian pushback on that, and this has been uh, sort of vindicated in multiple trade tribunals time and time again, is that the uh, when the crown lands go up, they go up in auction and they're on the free market. Yeah. So individuals are paying market prices for the rights to harvest from these lands. Yes. So they're saying this isn't subsidized. This is as free market as it can possibly be. Yeah. There are some asterisks to that, though, because in certain provinces that perhaps have one or two major controlling interests, perhaps in Atlantic Canada, for instance, uh, they tend the free market tends to not be that free. It's a bit of a like a monopsony where you have one basically one large buyer. Um, and that can definitely distort. So I can sort of see where that perception would come from. I, having lived out in perhaps a hypothetical Atlantic so province for a couple of years. I would push back on that a little bit. Just saying that there is the possibility for other large like American companies and stuff like that to get into the industry. Yeah, but there's a lot of transaction costs and like just like setting up the facilities, greasing the palms, all that stuff. Like I think it, a hypothetical conglomerate in a certain province that's been operating there for a long time would hypothetically have very deep connections to the political establishment in that hypothetical province so so laurent is of the pro-trump position on uh, on softwood no i just think like there's like i think to say that we have a free market approach because like the rents are free market is like kind of misleading in some cases because I, it's not everywhere but in some places you do have basically a monopsony situation a monopsony for people who didn't take first year econ is a situation where you have one buyer um so just okay so that's that's the issue at large um where do we want to go from there on it? so political point uh, on the american side actually is that trump has had a lot of support from the like building trades like both professionals and the union oddly. well i mean they've always anyway union politics aside that's been a base of support for him uh and he has now kicked them in the dick and or balls uh, quite hard by like raising the cost of their materials that they work with substantially up to 20%. Uh, so that hurts them quite a bit. So who does it benefit? Probably everyone but people who like Trump, I guess. Lumber barons. Oh yeah, the lumber yeah, barons. to say lumber barons. In the US? Because I mean, it, it hurts Canadian lumber barons. No, it's good for American lumber barons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. good for the American ones. It's the yeah. protectionism of the American Lumber Baron yeah. Association. Yeah. So that's that's great for not them. an actual trade organization. <laughs> they should the Barons Council. <laughs> um, so that'll bring us to our our last uh, topic for today, which is uh, something we've decided to dub uh, Papa Gate uh, about Justin Trudeau's bizarre Vice Town Hall about decriminalizing or legalizing marijuana, rather, uh, and something he said in the course of it. Um, so in the, in the course of this long, it was like what two hours, something like that. Yeah, it was a long. It was a long time. Uh, very long. He he talked about how part of his rationale for legalizing marijuana was that uh, he had, you know, there was in there's un unequal access to justice for people who get you know arrested and charged with marijuana possession, and he pointed to a story in his family where his his brother deceased now deceased brother Michel, um, was uh, you know charged with a marijuana possession and apparently somehow. 
family connections were able to get him out and he was like oh how bad is that you know that's so awful that you know my brother said lose his family connections to and the frustrating thing is like yes it is it is true that legalizing will you know alleviate this sort of uneven access to justice problem the further problem is that he's still maintaining that it's a good idea that people face this unequal access to justice for like another year in the interim yeah which is it's just like it's not coherent at all like it's just he's it's completely hypocritical it's infuriating so this is the NDP party line it is and i've acknowledged that like um past like i think it is just like i think we happen to be right on this one so i think to to play the game of devil's advocate and to try and argue their position on this or not not their public position but what they would uh sort of rationalize behind the scenes is that the number one thing that they have pushed over the course of the marijuana legalization or cannabis legalization process has been the safety element yeah as well as like the strict regulations and i think they are trying to circumvent the perception that they yeah. are you know going soft before they go hard i think that's like fair because i think you're correct to say that the overall like communication strategy around this has not been one of like individual liberty and you know freedom from you know no, it's, been it's been entirely from the public safety harm angle. reduction and public health right yes. which is like fair i think that's also important but i think the first side is important too especially because like he's alluded to this being a problem and now it's unwell i agree i think that's fair that that has been their approach i just think it's a bad approach and isn't coherent if he's willing to make the justice arguments for some aspects i just think it should be consistent yeah trying trying to put myself in their shoes that's just what i see that if if they're going to say then it's oh justin trudeau is handing out pot to school kids if by decriminalizing before he's rushing into a system they haven't even designed that guy it correct does open that, up, that's, that kind of thing. that's the pushback i think the tories are going to bitch about it anyway so i mean like they're they're going to bitch about anything he does. Sure. I think you may as well keep some progressive cred there. By I don't know if that's know. true. I think the uh, I think that's sort of changing depending on which uh, I which Tory you talk to. I think you are correct. Especially that... debating, we'll see the direction of the leadership. I yeah. think will largely determine. Well, I don't think either of the front runners is terribly interested in relitigating this. And only even one that I've reach. seen is, yeah. yeah. Or sorry, I, f- I forget Brad Trust exists oh, sometimes. Oh yeah, right, yeah, doesn't matter. Um, no, that's true. But like, There's... I agree that they're not willing to like recriminalize it in, in most cases. Um, but still, I think they're still going to take the shots they can going into legalization, and they, you know they'll take it regardless of what he does. I think. From what I've seen and what I suspect, I think the shots that they take won't be about legalization at large. I think it'll be about just different public safety angles. Yeah. Um, some of the talking points... It I... has been That has been the trend. They haven't tried to make this an all-out battle over should we legalize or not. Yeah, it's, like it's the, been about the The minutia. liberals have been irresponsible, etc. About sort of yeah. possession numbers and amounts yeah. and durations and yeah. mandatory yeah. minimums, things, yep. things along those lines. I think, on the other hand, that... If I were Justin Trudeau, I would be more concerned about pleasing potential NDP voters right now than I would be about pleasing potential Tory voters. I don't know. That's my take. He just still has to hold on to the center-right wing of his party. That is true. Yeah, it actually would be interesting to know what the voices in caucus and in cabinet were for, because I'm sure this was floated about decriminalization before legalization. It would be interesting to was, know what the dynamics in caucus were about that. Possibly one of the options on the MC 
Like that, that, that would seem yeah. entirely reasonable as one of the alternative options. So, uh, yeah, there's a lack of better information. We don't know. It is interesting to speculate, and certainly people who know the dynamics of the Liberal Party better than us are welcome to reach out. We'd love to hear from you. Um, I think that'll do it for us today. A slightly shorter episode than usual because, uh, A, it's been a parliamentary break week for the last week and will continue to be uh, for the coming one. Parliament is back next week at the beginning of May. And uh, we also have two things coming up uh, that will be good wonky episodes for you. We're going to have one on ATIP. The Access to Information Act. I should not lapse into jargon. Thank you, Etienne. On the Access to Information Act and sort of how it works and that sort of all the, the wonky details. Why it's important. want to know. Uh, and that will probably be dropping this weekend. Uh, and then we're going to have one on the Parliamentary Budget Officer. Etienne lectured me about this earlier. Correct. The Parliamentary Budget Officer. And their office, which has a potential changes coming in the budget implementation bill. And we're going to be talking, uh, hopefully, with someone about that. Uh, the details have not quite been finalized yet, but we hope to have that potentially next week. So we'll see. But any, at any rate... Worst two... case scenario, we'll discuss it with the intern. Exactly. <laughs> you go. Uh, but yeah, at any rate, two real two real good ones coming up. So uh, thanks, for, thanks for listening again this week. Uh, once again, follow us on, at ShortPantsPod. Uh, and once again... Do not forget to vote for DPAC on the political CPC leadership tracker. It is your duty. Please go out and do that. I would also just add as a small personal victory, we are now beating uh, CBC's pollcast in Woo! terms of uh, in terms of reviews on iTunes. Nice, and keep keep them coming in so we can make Eric Rainier weep. Take that, Mother Corp. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks everyone for listening, and uh, we'll see you soon. Take it easy.